Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. This week, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency released proposed regulations which would cut carbon pollution from future and existing power plants. Since coal accounts for about 80% of Utah's power generation, twice the national average, our state may be disproportionately affected. Tim Wagner, organizing representative for the Sierra Club, laws the proposal. He says it will help clean up our air, improve the health of our children, curb the worst effects of climate disruption. Representative Chris Stewart, Republican from Utah, is representative of uh, the view against. He warns that the cost of this new regulation will be paid for by you and me in the form of increased power bills, fewer jobs, and a decrease in the manufacturing sector. We're going to give you a chance to weigh in on this issue today on the program. You can call 1-800-826-1495 or join us by email to upraxcess at gmail.com. We want to know how you think this will affect us, whether you're for or against. Our guests include, from the Sierra Club, Tim Wagner. Welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me. And we welcome in Mason Baker, General Counsel for Utah Associated Municipal Power Systems. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So what is the Utah Associated Municipal Power Systems? So Utah Associated Municipal Power Systems, otherwise known as UANS, is a joint action agency comprised of municipally owned utilities who own their own electric distribution systems. And currently we have 45 members in eight western states. The majority of our members are in um, Utah, and we provide them with wholesale electric services. Okay. Uh, so your, your, your power plants uh, potentially be directly affected by these regulations? They, they will be. Um, within the state of Utah, our members have entitlements to the Intermountain Power Plant outside of Delta, Utah, as well as uh, the Hunter Power Plant outside of Price, Utah. And then additionally, we have an ownership interest in the San Juan Generating Station located outside of Farmington, New Mexico. Mm-hmm. And as we go along, um, I'll, I'll have you maybe characterize uh, maybe the tone of the discussion, any consensus that came out of a, a panel discussion at the Governor's Energy Development Summit, which you were a part uh, yesterday. Uh, let me start with with uh, Tim Wagner. Um, I, I, you see a lot of positives here, I think. This would uh, uh, cut, I think they go back to 2005 levels, the EPA does here, but uh, a uh, 30% reduction in uh, carbon emissions, for, for, and this for the first time, I believe, affects existing power plants. Yes, that's, that's right. This is the first time that uh, that we've actually passed, well, not passed, but actually come out with some really strong proposed rules that would really start to address this larger issue of, of uh, carbon emissions. Um, and this particular rule, of course, addresses just uh, that coming from coal-based power plants, which is the single largest source of carbon emissions in the country. So it's the first time uh, that this has actually happened. It, it's significant in the fact that it does go after the, uh, the largest single sources I mentioned, and it does make some pretty substantial cuts. Um, so, yeah, we're, we're quite thrilled to actually see it coming up. We wish it would have happened about 10 years ago, but... Uh, but we'll take it. Yeah. Uh, it, it's it's being called the Clean Power Plan, and this is coming at the instigation of the White House. Um, so w- what emissions are, are being targeted? Uh, carbon dioxide? What's 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 the biggest target here? Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, you know, literally for years, the Clean Air Act has regulated all the other types of emissions from power plants, including nitrogen oxide, sulfur dioxides, uh, VOCs or volatile organic compounds and, and mercury and so forth and so on, but carbon has been the only pollutant coming out of coal-based power that has not been regulated at all. So this is the first time that, that this particular emission will finally be regulated. So is this, uh, will this affect only coal-fired plants? What, uh, will it go broadly beyond that? Uh as far as I know, yes, it just affects coal-fired power plants because it puts a a, a certain level of of um, CO2 uh, in, 
terms of metric tons, it's allowable per megawatt being produced by a coal-based power plant. And and it just, you know, because natural gas-powered power plants don't produce that level anyway, so they would obviously, obviously be excluded. But coal does, you know, it's much, much higher. So that's 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 why the, the why the necessary regulation. So you mentioned that the, these power plants, I guess the the coal ones, are the the, the biggest single polluter or, or you know contributor to uh, carbon. Uh, so tell us what you think the effect will be if if these proposed rules go into effect and are followed, and uh, and we meet those targets. Well, one of the really good things that's been lauded about this proposed rule is the fact that it gives the states a lot of flexibility. They have to come up with their own plan in terms of how they meet these specific guidelines. And, <clears throat> excuse me, and, and so, you know, once the regulation is put in place, then the existing power plants would have, you know, a certain, lot of, a certain amount of, a lot of time in order to meet that new standard. And so it would, the way I understand it, the utilities or the power providers would have um, whatever options are at their disposal in terms of meeting this new reduction guideline or this new reduction standard. And, um, and as far as what we foresee happening here, I mean, I mean, actually what's going on here is what's been going on already. Uh, this is really not that groundbreaking in terms of something really big happening. Uh, there's already a huge transition underway in the utility and power producing industry across the country, shifting away from coal-based power to natural gas, and we're seeing a lot more renewables come online as well as renewables continue to get cheaper and cheaper mm-hmm. and much more competitive. And so this just basically adds an extra layer of, I guess, I'd call it incentive, uh, for lack of a better term, in terms for uh, making the industry do what needs to be done. And no one's power bills are going to go up that much we, that we can perceive, if any at all. To be quite frankly, I think, I think the marketplace is really coming into play here. As long as natural gas stays as low as it is uh, in the current boom in, in uh, production of natural gas, and we're seeing this continual steady decline in the price of renewable energy, largely in the form of wind and solar and some geothermal here in the West and certainly in Utah, uh, you know, those market forces, I think, are going to continue to drive the cost of energy production down. More and more producers are going to be getting into the renewable market, which will drive down the prices even more. Uh, I think a lot of the scare tactics being used by the industry that says this is going to raise raise uh, customers' utility bills dramatically is just scare tactics only. And we may see some slight increases, but I, I don't anticipate a lot, of, uh, to be quite honest. I think it's actually going to stabilize and everything's going to be fine. If you just tuned into Access Utah, we're talking about the new proposed rules from the EPA. It's gotten a lot of press. Uh, the the goal is ambitious, uh, cutting by 30% carbon emissions from power plants, including existing power plants, by the year 2030. Um, and, uh, of course, the, the reaction is uh, mixed. Uh, all you have to do to get the negative view is uh, go to just about any member of Utah's congressional delegation. Uh, they're warning of uh, costs uh, being paid by you and me in the form of increased power bills, fewer jobs, decrease in the manufacturing sector, uh, other bad effects. Uh, conservationists especially uh, laud this move. They're saying this is uh, long needed and will help to address climate change and uh, help in the transition to renewable energy sources. You're welcome to join the conversation. We'd love to get your perspective. 1-800-826-1495 is the phone number, 1-800-826-1495. Or you can join us by email to upraxcess at gmail.com. So Mason Baker, uh, General Counsel for Utah Associated Municipal Power Systems, or UAMPS, uh, give you a chance to to respond, see if you agree or disagree with some of the things that Tim Wagner has been saying. I'd like to start with uh, uh, increase in power bills. Is this going to increase price of electricity? 
Well, I think at this point it would be premature to say if it's going to result in an increase or a decrease. Um, I know Tina McCarthy has said it's going to result in a 8% decrease in retail electric bills, but that's largely dependent on the compliance costs, and those are all forecasted estimates at this point. And until we start actually doing some more complex modeling and figuring out how um, the various states are going to comply with it, and how the resources within those states are going to try to comply with this new rule, I don't think we're going to really know. Um, I, I think Tim did a fair characterization of um, how the industry is moving. You know, costs of renewables are going down. Um, so it's at this point, it's, it's probably just premature to speculate that um, the, the retail price of electricity will go up or down. What about uh, job loss? That's uh, another prediction being made by those opposed to this. Uh, one factor here, I, I understand, I don't know for sure, a uh, natural gas plant requires fewer people to run it than a coal plant? Yeah, that's that's absolutely true. Um, you know, if you look at a, a big-sized coal plant, you have something like 400-plus employees. Um, a, lot, a lot of times, especially in Utah, those plants are located in relatively rural communities. I mean, you can look at the Intermountain Power Project that's outside of Delta, and, um, you know, they employ a significant amount of people in that community. And so having that employment just be cut off potentially by this rule could be pretty devastating to one of those more rural communities. And uh, this, as you say, these uh, power plants tend to be located in rural areas, so... Rural economy, rural jobs, per, perhaps disproportionately affected. Absolutely, yeah. It's just especially in the West, where these large coal-fired power plants are located in more rural areas than they are back east. Uh, let me uh, go back to Tim Wagner. Uh, so, job loss is is do you worry about that in, in, the, in this transition? Well, it's certainly an issue that a lot of people share some valid concerns about. I get that. I grew up in a rural part of the country um, where economic opportunities, you know, are much more limited than what we have, say, here along the Wasatch Front. However, um, you know, the, uh, the fact of the matter is that, and this has been demonstrated all across the country quite well, in, where you have states that are aggressively pursuing renewable energy standards, sometimes called renewable portfolio standards, or where you are there a variety of policies that encourage renewable energy development, it's clearly being shown that renewable energy actually is a much greater job uh, producer or creator than, than coal-based electricity. Um, my, I grew up in Iowa in, in the Midwest, and... Iowa now leads the nation in terms, or one of the leading states in the nation in terms of wind energy production. And, and there's somewhere between eight and 10,000 jobs right now in that state just in the wind energy industry alone, where you've got all these manufacturers who have set up shop producing, you know, parts for like wind turbine blades and all kinds of different services associated with that particular industry. Uh, it is really growing, and it's the same thing with solar. And I think actually solar may show to actually be a greater job creator than even wind energy. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and as I'm scanning the news this morning, there's, you know, a front page article in the Utah section of the Solid Tribune about several major large scale utility scale solar plants being proposed uh, and in the permitting stages in Utah right now. Finally, we're starting to catch up with the rest of the country. I mean, we are dead last in, in between all 11 states in the West in terms of renewable energy production, that being the amount of electricity we get from wind and solar and geothermal and so forth. And finally, we look like we may be poised to start catching up at, at the long curve, but we're getting there. And these kind of projects, you know, say, you know, a 300-megawatt solar plant being, being proposed out uh, near the IPP plant near Delta. I mean, yeah, there's going to be some job losses when that big coal plant finally does shut down or transitions to natural gas and other sources, but it's, 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 it's too easy to dismiss the amount of jobs that will be created 
from the production uh, and installation of several large solar plants like that and and what will happen down the road. I mean, it's just, it's a really, a, it's a domino effect, I think, with an exponential factor uh, beside it that, that, that we have yet to see and realize in this state. And, I mean, let's face it, I mean, Utah... We're poised to become a major solar producer in, this, in the lower 48 states. It's quite remarkable that the state of New Jersey is, act, is actually producing much more solar energy than we are. And the only reason that is because New Jersey has shown the political will to go forward and start developing these resources. They don't, but they don't have near the solar gain that we do here in the, in the interior west. So that tells tells us that Obviously, Utah has a great opportunity here, and we should exploit that. And so I think the job creation factor is, is uh, something that, that will be realized, and at some point we'll look back at this and say, oh, well, okay, you know, we were scared about losing jobs because of coal being phased out, but look what we got now. So actually we're much better off. I think, I think that conversation is going to come forward in the future. Mason Baker from UAMPS. Uh, I, I believe UAMPS is involved in renewable energy, uh, you know, wind, hydroelectric, uh, and, and other projects. Is that true? Uh, it is, yes. We we developed a 57-megawatt wind farm outside of Idaho Falls uh, that went online in August of 2012, and we're actively looking at other renewable projects, um, and we'll continue to do so um, I'm curious about the economics of this, the market forces, um, and uh, have you respond to have both of you respond first, uh, Mr. Baker? Uh, the governor uh, speaking at his um, energy development conference, which uh, concluded yesterday, and uh, Mr. Baker was uh, was part of that on a panel discussion. Uh, he has this to say about solar. He says we have a lot of people that say the public wants solar power. Well, okay, we'll see if they buy it. Uh, he says a, a bit of skepticism there, and he's talking about uh, the economics of this. I wonder if you could take us through the economics of a, an association like yours or the you know, companies involved uh, transitioning from, say, coal to renewable power sources. Uh, the economics has to work. Sure, yeah. I mean, part of our mandate is to figure out a cost-effective solution that assures that our um, customers municipalities will be able to deliver safe and reliable electricity to their retail users. So the the economics are always at play. Um, I think it's important to note that, you know, it's not necessarily a transition from coal, just going straight over to renewables, because everyone's well aware renewables are a variable resource, and you can't always rely on them to be there. So you have to keep that in mind. It's going to be some sort of combination in the transition from um, coal to some other form of baseload power, whether it's natural gas or perhaps some sort of nuclear option um, combined with um, a varied mix of renewables. It's not just going to be a coal to renewable switch. I wonder, uh, first, Mr. Baker, on this, how much regulation plays a part and how much should it play a part? And I'm thinking specifically of the Intermountain Power Project, uh, which I understand is is making, will be making a transition to natural gas, in part at least, because a lot of that power goes to California, and California has a regulation against coal, it, no, no coal generation, I guess, by 2027 or something. Sure, that's, that's correct. Um, under California law, they are not able to make long-term investments in non-compliant fuel resources, and coal is one of those resources. So um, under the current time frame, as I understand it, the Intermountain Power Project is to go offline at the end of 2025 and be converted to a natural gas combined cycle plant um, around that same time period. Hmm. Uh, so, um, Tim Wagner, I wonder if you'd comment first on Intermountain Power Project and, and my question about uh, uh, the proper mix or most effective mix of regulation versus market forces. California seems to often be a driver here with the regulations. Well, there's no doubt that California has been a driver in this entire 
carbon regulation slash renewable energy development scenario that's playing out across the country now. They've been a driver for, oh gosh, going back to, all the way back to 2004 when the city of L.A. first decided to back out of a $500 million commitment to build the third coal-fired power unit at the IPP plant near Delta. That was followed by, uh, within the next year or so, uh, California Assembly passing a law and signed by Governor Schwarzenegger a couple of measures that put some serious restrictions on carbon emissions from the amount of electricity that the state was going to procure uh, procure in the future, in future contracts. AB 32 was one of those bills that had put a restriction of about 1,100 pounds of carbon per metric ton maximum allowed, which is really a standard that could only be met today by uh, by a modern natural gas plant. And then since then, of course, the city of L.A. being the major major purchaser of power from the IPV plant, as you mentioned, has, uh, and as your other guests mentioned as well, you know, put some, some uh, restrictions in place in terms of uh, that affected directly the power they were going to be buying from IPP in the future. That that has been a major driver, and of course, California has also got it, gotten quite aggressive in terms of uh, state policy uh, to encourage more rooftop solar in the state, which is now causing a huge explosion in the solar industry in California. Um, and as a result, you're seeing huge market forces now come in. I mean, lots of solar companies setting up shop out there, which is understandable. So it's a, it's a combination of certain policies enacted at the state level in this case, and now we're talking federal policies, um, but do end up, you know, s- signaling major shifts to the markets. I mean, let's face it. I mean, we see this in all kinds of industries, whether it's, you know, the automobile industry or, uh, you know, with new safer regulations for cars, which spurred all kinds of side companies, you know, developing over the years to manufacture parts for cars to make them, make them safer. Uh, you know, you could look at, at regulations that, that were put in place years ago to regulate, say, uh, emissions from, from paint. You know that we use in our home, which has spurred, you know, lots of you know development in terms of bio-safe paints that we now use. I mean, it's just, I mean, you can cite many cases where this has happened, but you know where a certain regulation or regulations were passed that then the market responded in a very positive way and said, okay, we can meet that. This is an opportunity. Some of the entrepreneurs sitting out there and sees this new regulation and says. Here's an opportunity for us. Let's see if we can fill this, and, and suddenly we have a business going. And that's exactly what you're seeing here. And, and you know, now, I mean, we used to look at this, you know, 10 years ago when we first started talking about regulating carbon and, and um, you know, and the development of renewals coming in place, where you looked at basically a, a, a graph with two lines, one being the price of coal-based power, versus another line being the price of renewable energy. And we were saying 10 years ago that at some point those two lines are going to intersect. That's exactly what you're seeing now. And it's only going to continue to spur more and more development and better technologies in renewable energy to where renewable energies will at some point overtake you know, the fossil fuel industry in terms of electricity production in this country. I firmly believe that. Hmm. And it's just a matter of time. Um, so it's it's and it isn't just responsible. It isn't just res, um, it isn't just because of regulation. Truly, the market force does does react in a positive way, and that's what we're seeing now. If you just joined us, we are talking about new EPA uh, proposed regulations, which would cut carbon pollution from future and existing power plants. Coal accounts for about 80% of Utah's power generation right now. It's not twice the national average, so our state will definitely be affected. 
And we're uh, getting your opinion on this and uh, the opinion of uh, Tim Wagner with the Sierra Club and Mason Baker, who is with uh, UAPS, Utah Associated Municipal Power Systems. You can respond to the program at upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com, and uh, by telephone, 1-800-826-1495. We're going to take a brief break. When we come back, I'll uh, get reaction from uh, Governor Herbert's uh, comments, his uh, skepticism about solar power, whether people will will buy it at uh, a current price, um, from uh, Tim Wagner. Also, uh, talk a little further about this with Mason Baker, this this, this mix of market forces and uh, regulation, as... uh, Tim Wagner noted this: these new regulations are not incredibly groundbreaking because the industry has been moving away from coal anyway due to market forces. More on this and hopefully your comments following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crown Brothers Artisan Bread. At 300 South and 300 West in Logan, open Monday through Saturday until 3. With a changing menu, including an adobo marinated chicken panini with cilantro pesto, daikon sprouts, and provolone cheese. This is Steve Tracy, bringing more to life. Long-term care is labor-intensive and expensive. Older people often need more care than they anticipate. Ask your parents about any long-term care insurance plans they hold. Review the coverage details together. Discuss their assets and financial goals to help provide peace of mind for them and for you. Be honest about what you can do to help. Start the conversation now to bring more to their lives. Support for Bringing More to Life on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our listeners and the Sunshine Terrace Foundation in Logan. Advancing wellness, independence, dignity, and comfort. Information at sunshineterrace.com. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. On Monday, the EPA released its Clean Power Plan, which calls for a 30% reduction in carbon emissions from power plants, including existing power plants, by 2030. The rules would curb national carbon dioxide emissions from power plants by almost a third from 2005 levels over the next decade and a half. It would require Utah to cut coal-generated emissions by nearly as much. Utah gets uh, 80% of its power generation from coal, twice the national average. And so since coal will be mostly affected by these new rules, Utah will be very much affected. We're talking about this with uh, Mason Baker, General Counsel for UAMPS, Utah Associated Municipal Power Systems, and Tim Wagner, who is with the Sierra Club. You're welcome to weigh in on the subject. Hope that you will. Love to get your perspective at 1-800-826-1495. Are you worried about increased power bills, job loss, or are you focusing on uh, the effect this will have, positive effect on uh, climate change and our environment, perhaps air quality? The number is 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495, or email to upraxcess at gmail.com. And we do have an email Already, uh, first couple of questions. First to Mason Baker. I wonder what uh, I don't know if you're if you're willing to uh, take us behind the scenes discussions among uh, power providers. Um, as Tim Wagner pointed out, the, the industry has been moving away from coal. In any case, uh, is there a point at which uh, power systems providers say we don't really need this regulation? We're moving in that direction anyway. And, uh, and this just might have a, a negative effect on us. We get too much regulation. Um, well, I mean, it could. I think it's important to consider this rule in the context of all the other regulations that are putting pressure on coal-fired power plants. I mean, there's um, a lot of different aspects of the Clean Air Act that are currently imposing uh, large capital costs on coal plants. So those have to be taken into consideration, uh, particularly in the West. There's the regional haze provision of the Clean Air Act, which requires visibility improvement in Class 1 areas, pretty much national parks and wilderness areas. And a lot of coal-fired power plants in the Intermountain West are being affected by that regulation currently. And to comply with it, they would have to make 
large capital expenditures. So uh, this rule does amplify or make the decision-making process much more difficult because those big investments caused by the regional haze provision would have to be amortized over a long period of time. And this rule could uh, dramatically shorten that amortization period and those investments might not look prudent. But it's all uh, a little up in the air and probably would be premature at this point not understanding exactly the cost impacts of this rule to say that it's going to be some sort of uh, dispositive end to coal-fired power plants in the West. But it's it's certainly um, adding to the growing strain on the plants in the Intermountain West. I think there 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 are one or two uh, coal-fired power plants in Utah. The, the decision's been made anyway to shut them down because it's it's just not cost-effective. That's true. Um, there is the carbon plant, which is in um, Price, the Price Canyon. Um, you see it right off the road when you're driving through. That plant's slated to shut down at the end of this year um, due to Clean Air Act concerns and compliance with, I believe, uh, the mercury air toxic standard rule that came out a couple of years ago. Um, and then the other plant that's slated to shut down, is, as we talked about already, is the Intermountain Power Plant outside of Delta, Utah. The decision to shut it down and convert it to gas, as Tim noted, was mostly to deal with Californian concerns, who are the primary off-takers at that plant, to comply with their existing state laws. Mm. Uh, Tim Wagner, I want to have you re- react uh, specifically to Governor Herbert's comments Um He's it's talking about solar power. I guess you could expand this to other forms of renewable. He says, we have a lot of people that say the public wants solar power. He says, well, okay, we'll see if they buy it. Well, I think that's a fairly cynical viewpoint. Um, I mean, <laughs> the public has been wanting to, more and more members of the public have been asking for solar-based power and renewable energy power for a long time in the state, going back well over a decade. And and but people have really ramped it up that that uh, that concern in the last few years. And um, and I think there again, the market's going to have a lot to do with this, as we're seeing the price of solar come down. Uh, and along with, you know, additional incentives from, from say, our major utility like Rocky Mountain Power, uh, which has helped some people buy uh, solar, rooftop solar. But, uh, you know, the end point here is people really do want it, and they want it to be affordable. Now, you know, obviously it's a major investment for someone to put, you know, enough roof enough rooftop solar panels on their roof to actually power their home. Uh, but, gosh, I know a lot of people that have either done it or are looking at it. I mean, I'm concerned in right now my own home, looking at a couple of proposals, and we hope to probably do something for the next year. Uh, there's a lot of people out there that want that. And also the fact from, you know, from the perspective of, say, Max or Rocky Mountain Power, or utility providers, there is an increasing awareness um, across the spectrum, and, and I think it crosses all demographic and party and political lines, of people wanting more opportunities for clean power to, when they write their check, their monthly check for the utility bill, they want to know that they're paying for something that isn't going to damage the environment, hurt the planet, you know, damage their health, and so forth and so on. I used to always call this as back around 2004, 2005, when I started working on this stuff a lot, they used to tell people that we were seeing a transition from energy apathy to energy awareness. And it's very true, and it's really happening now, that there really is a growing demand for cleaner energy, whether it's at the distributed generation, that be on your own rooftop, or in the central generate central generating capacity, like at the utility scale, people want that, 
And and I think it behooves us to muster all we can in terms of both utility actions as well as state policies to encourage that, to accommodate that. And it's going to actually increase economic growth in the state. I really truly believe that. Mm-hmm. And so for the governor to say, well, we'll just see if people will buy it, I, I think he's vastly underestimating what the people of Utah want, and he certainly is out of touch with what Utah voters are really asking for. I firmly believe that. Talk about new EPA proposed regulations on carbon emissions for future plants. Uh, it's been the case in the in the past. Uh, the innovation here is uh, this would regulate existing plants as well. It'll hit coal hard, and uh, Utah uh, has eighty percent of its electricity generation from coal, so it will definitely affect uh, Utah. And we're talking. Uh, the program today with Tim Wagner from the Sierra Club and Mason Baker from UAPS, Utah Associated Municipal Power Systems. Uh, you can join the program at uh, upraxcess at gmail.com or 1-800-826-1495. We have this email from Greg in Logan. He says, I think we've reached a point where we can no longer put off these regulations and changes. Projections on job loss and rate increases are nothing compared to projected changes in climate. We cannot treat this like a decision to buy ice cream or dinner or not. This is about a need, not a want. Tim Wagner, what do you think of that? Well, that particular person is spot on. I mean, it's absolutely the truth. We are facing the biggest crisis we've ever seen. And our, my generation and my daughter's generation, generations after her, are facing. Uh, just this morning, there was another article in the paper about what we expect to see in terms of climate effects for the, for the southwest. They predict the, the northeast and the southwestern part of the U.S. are going to experience the greatest uh, warm-ups in, in temperature than any other parts of the country. That is combined with just what we're seeing is increased, dramatically increases in, um, in, in very violent, sporadic weather patterns. Uh, you know, and in sea rises, and now we just saw here less than a month ago the report that shows that that scientists are saying we will not save the west shelf of the Antarctic ice cap. It's going, which is going to result in dramatic increases in sea rises all across the planet. You know, in many ways, it's too late. I mean, what we're doing here, what we're talking about today, we should have been doing actually 20 years ago. Because even if we stopped producing emitting carbon now, today, the carbon that's already there and the carbon that will stay in the atmosphere for the next 50 to 100 years is going to have dramatic impacts on our climate, which ultimately affects our weather patterns. And so the, the, the writer of that email is spot on. The cost that we are going to be bearing as a society and a culture for, and we're already bearing you know, you could look at the Hurricane Sandy costs or Hurricane Katrina costs in 2005 and how many other, you know, episodic events of tornadoes that we've seen in parts of the country. We never used to have tornadoes, you know, in actual loss of life. I mean, it has really ramped up dramatically. Those are real costs. So when we talk about maybe a penny or two or even three or four cents under our utility bill, come on, folks. Let's get with the program. Let's see the big picture. And so, yeah, the, 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 that person is spot on. Let's go to a caller, Tiffany in Logan. Tiffany, glad you called. Go ahead with your question or comment. Yeah, I think um, I take issue with the with Governor Herbert's comment that you read earlier when he said if people will buy it. I think at the end of the day, people just want to turn their lights on. And if the, the energy source that it's coming from um, doesn't hurt the environment, I don't see what the huge issue is. Honestly, I don't. It it bewilders me when people are so opposed to renewable energy sources when it really gives you the same effects that you're wanting, which is turning your lights on, um, without damaging the environment nearly as much. Uh, Thank you, Tiffany. Appreciate that. Uh, First, to to Mason Baker, do do you think the economics of this are going to work out in the near future? Speak, speaking the, specifically about solar. Economics of solar? Yeah. Um, well, I, I think it's undeniable that the cost of solar has 
decreased dramatically in the last couple of years. And so you're going to see uh, a much greater deployment of solar than we probably would have. Uh, of course, it's more economical on the utility scale uh, just due to the economies of scale of doing it. Um, so I, I do think there's going to be more of it. Um, you know, it's it's going to take some time to get it in. Um, you know, a lot of the economics behind doing utility-scale solar is based on federal tax incentives, incentives currently. So that has, also has to be kept in mind. Um, but I, I do think in all it will, it will be a lot more predominant than it has been. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's go to uh, Margaret in Bernal. Margaret, glad you called. Go ahead with your question or comment. Good morning. Um, well, I wanted to say, uh, in your cost estimates, have you uh, um, taken away the cost of mining coal and the, uh, uh, all the problems that a coal miner gets from doing that job? I'm sure that the, the, cost, the overall cost then is not going to be very much different. And what is more, the, the sun and the wind are, are free, uh, so I, I'm not quite sure why the cost should go up. Uh, Tim Wagner, I wonder if you want to respond to that. Well, the caller makes a very, very valid point. I mean, think about it. Here's here's how we here's how coal-based power currently works. So somewhere deep down underground in some coal mine or on some surface mine, you've got a host of workers that are running heavy, expensive equipment, you know, loosening the veins of the coal, and then they have to ship it out of the mine through rails and then onto a rail car, and then that that train of rail cars exports that coal, in many cases, hundreds of miles to a power plant, where then it has to go through a huge process where they pulverize it into a fine powder, or much finer than the big coal chunks that you see coming out of a mine, and then it's burnt, and that produces enough hot steam to turn the turbine to generate electricity. And in the process, you got to use a lot of water, and then you have to get rid of the coal waste and the coal ash, all this is very, very expensive. Compare that to just a scenario of putting up a solar panel on your roof or a whole array of solar panels across some wide, flat area in the West Desert and where they just sit there and they collect sun's rays and convert it to electricity. Now, really, what do you think is the more expensive process of producing electricity? It's, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure this out. And... Yes, while there are certain costs in producing solar panels and installing them, once they're there in place, there's little maintenance involved. You just got to keep them clean and make sure your infrastructure is in place to process and, and transmit the electricity. So the overall cost over time comes down dramatically for producing electricity from solar. And it's the same thing as wind. Wind certainly has more moving parts in terms of a turbine, but once they're up there in place, there's not a lot of maintenance involved in these things. And so, whereas with a big, huge coal-eating power plant, it's like a hungry machine that constantly needs to be fed. And the process of feeding the source of food to that big beast never ends. It just goes on and on and on and on. So it's a very simple thing when you think about it. So, yeah, the, co- the caller's spot on. I mean, it's, you know, it, it, it's only a matter of time when the renewable form of energy is going to be so much cheaper than what is coming from these big, huge, centralized, generating coal-based power plants. Uh, Let's go uh, next to an email. This is from Doug in St. George. This is what Doug says. Uh, It might be a good soundbite to focus on the disproportionate effect clean air laws may have on Utah, but the reverse side of that coin is that Utah disproportionately fouls the nation's air. What is our quality of life and our health worth? As for job loss, many industries used to hire more employees but have become more efficient, providing customers products and services at lower prices. Do we really want to turn back the clock, paying higher prices so more workers can be employed? My power usage is lower this year from last year, yet my power bill is higher, and this is before the new regulations go into effect. I see no evidence that the power companies or our legislators are very concerned about saving me money. Our congressional delegates seem to always be against anything proposed by Washington. Instead of their usual knee-jerk reaction, why don't they come up with their own proposals to lower energy costs, clean up the air, and create jobs that benefit all of society, not just employees of coal-powered energy plants? That's Doug in St. George. Thank you for that. 
so let me go first to, to uh, Mason Baker with uh, UAMPS. Uh, he talks about uh, costs, and he takes a bit of a swipe at power companies. They're not concerned about uh, our our costs. Uh, what, what's your reaction? Well, um, you know, as I mentioned at the beginning of the program, UAMPS is a not-for-profit organization. So we are very concerned about costs, and we don't have any sort of shareholder that we're trying to make whole. Um, at the end of the day, if um, we come in under budget, then we send out a rebate to our members. Um, I would note, I'm not sure where he's located, but we do have members down there in Washington County, City of St. George, City of Washington, Enterprise. Um, so we, we are very cognizant of uh, the end-use customer, and we're always trying to find the most cost-effective solution to them, um, and we'll continue to do that. And I think it'll be an interesting um, an interesting process to figure out the most economic way to comply with this rule while providing reliable and safe electricity to those customers. We just have about a minute left to give uh, Tim Wagner the, the last word. What, what, what's your last word on the subject? I'm, I'm sorry? Uh, your last word on the subject. We just have about a minute left. Oh, yeah, sure. Um, you know, well, one of the things that, that we should have mentioned in this conversation was, you know, I think I briefly mentioned that, and, and that is this new proposed regulation really does have a lot of flexibility. And, you know, even from the EPA's own website and they, what they put out in terms of information about this thing, you know, they're, they set the standard and they're allowing the states to come up with all kinds of ways to meet that. That includes energy efficiency, which in many ways is the cheapest form of energy production or energy for our homes and businesses that we can provide by reducing the amount that we use. I mean, therefore, we save money, but we also reduce the amount of carbon emissions. Renewable energy standards, efficiency improvements at power plants, dispatch changes, coal-fired and switching to natural gas, construction and natural gas combined cycle plants, transmission efficiency improvements, all kinds of things. There's a huge list of things that the states and the utilities can implement to meet this new standard. So the point being that when you hear critics say this is just this big heavy hand of government and it's going to kill jobs and it's going to ruin our economy and it's going to make our prices of our energy bills go up, it's all just complete hyperbole. There really is a lot of flexibility here, and I think it's a good standard, and the state of Utah should embrace it and not resist it and go forward, and we can just watch the jobs grow. We'll uh, leave it there. We're out of time. Uh, and we appreciate uh, Tim Wagner from Sierra Club for being with us. Uh, thank you. Thanks a lot. Appreciate hey, it. And Mason Baker from UAPS, Utah Associated Municipal Power System. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. We'll, uh, we'll keep an eye on this, of course. Uh, it be very interesting to see how this uh, goes forward. Uh, and uh, for my producers, I'm Tom Williams. Thanks for listening to Utah Public Radio. Utah Public Radio presents StoryCorps, an oral history project in conjunction with the National Library of Congress, recorded in May of 2013 in St. George. From astronauts and test pilots to Hollywood celebrities, retired dentist 93-year-old Roy Nyson talks with his wife Janice about his brushes with the stars. After I left Edwards Air Force Base, we went down to the Los Angeles area and we were looking for a place to set up an office, and we came to the place in Sherman Oaks. I said, Janice, wouldn't this be a great place to have an office at the Royal Oaks District? We went and took the practice over, and it had all these movie stores I was telling you about, Clark Gable, Ginger Rogers, Olivia Havlin, and Howard Hughes and all of those. Marilyn Monroe was the one I want to tell you about now. She called in to make an appointment, and... So we were expecting her, and Dr. Hollenbach says, believe many a time because she's always late. She came in, got out of her limousine, trotted in, and she was standing there. <laughs> I guess I was, my eyes bulged out of my head, and I looked, saw her standing there. That was a, kind of a frightful experience, but she introduced herself, very friendly, and she came in the office quite a few times, three or four times a year. She had one of the most perfect sets of teeth there is. But one time she was uh, making a picture with Tony Curtis called Some Like It Hot. And on the set one day, the director says, Marilyn, 
you've got to do something with your teeth. Tony's taking the, the limelight away from you because his teeth are shining. Well, Tony had them all capped. He had all porcelain caps on them, and when the light hit the teeth, they would shine back. She came in, I said, we'll do what we can, but you've got to remember these enamel is the second hardest material in the world next to diamond. So I don't know whether we can paint them or what we can do, but we will try. I polished them up good, and then we painted them. It worked good while she was in the office, but once she got over and got on the set, it started to flake off. <laughs> so <laughs> had the flakes, and so it didn't work. And we tried several other things I did, and finally I took impressions of her mouth, poured up models, and made some little flipper that would go right on the front, made it really white and nice. And then when she got before the camera, she just snapped that on, and then she'd smile. But the trouble with that, it held at her lip, and she looked like Loretta Young. Finally, she came in, and we was exhausted. I said, Marilyn, as you go back and tell that director that you've got the most perfect set of teeth in the world, and that Tony Curtis is just all capped, and his is artificial. And I said, just let him know that your teeth are fine. And that's where it ended. In doing this with Marilyn, I took impressions, poured them out, so I had the molds of her teeth in the lab. And when I moved, I lost them. I looked everywhere for them, but we couldn't, we, we haven't been able to come up with them. So anyway, mm -hmm. she was a great gal, and the last time I saw Marilyn was she came in the office two days before she committed suicide. I cleaned her teeth, and we could tell that she was having problems. In fact, her last film was The Misfits with Clark Gable. She was always late several hours to the set, and she was having a lot of problems with taking up and downers to keep her going. She was married to the playwright, Arthur Miller, at the time, and they were having divorce problems and everything else. So it wasn't long after Clark died that she committed suicide. Anyway, that's about it. Uh, I sold my practice to another fellow, Wynne Chaplin. I went and went back to orthodontic school. We've had good life in, in, our, in the military. We had great life and, and in our dental professions. We've, we've been very blessed. These interviews were recorded at StoryCorps, a national initiative to record and collect stories of everyday people. Excerpts were selected and produced by Utah Public Radio. Support for StoryCorps on Utah Public Radio comes from Dixie Regional Medical Center, located on two campuses in St. George, serving northwestern Arizona, southeastern Nevada, and southern Utah. Information at DixieRegional.org. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan. Thank you for listening to Utah Public Radio and Access Utah, a service of the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University. Stay tuned for the Zesty Garden coming up next, followed by performance today at 11. Time now is 10 o'clock.